this morning in light of that song, um, why don't you just do something uh, for me? Um, Yeah, so let's just take a minute, and I just want you to breathe in, just like you're breathing in God's peace. And then when you exhale, you're exhaling fear. It's like peace, fear. Inhaling peace, exhaling worry. Inhaling peace, exhaling anxiety. Uh, what a beautiful song uh, that God has, has given to us because during these past several weeks due to COVID-19, uh, this pandemic uh, virus that has been unleashed upon the world, uh, people are filled with fear and worry and anxiety. And uh, these, these worry, fear, and anxiety has probably reached new levels in many people's lives. Now, whenever we are hit with those kinds of emotions, we, we look for ways to deal with them. We look for ways to cope with the emotions that we are confronted with. And oftentimes, our coping mechanisms are not healthy. So it's no accident, it's not a coincidence that during these, you know, these days of isolation and people dealing with their fear, worry, and anxiety, uh, drug overdoses, suicide, abuse, pornography use has, is skyrocketing. Because whenever you, um, you, you take a, 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 an emotion and you're trying to deal with that emotion and you're attaching it to um, a time frame in your life, it becomes very, very powerful. And so there's so much unknown out in front of us right now that people are struggling. Now, you may not be struggling with these things that I just described, but it might be that your coping mechanism is like overeating, it might be oversleeping. It might be binge-watching TV. It might be excessive use of alcohol. We all have coping mechanisms, and they are exasperated in times like this, when we're confronted and we're bombarded day in and day out about the fears and worries and the anxieties that are confronting us as a society. And so as we discussed last Sunday, the underlying emotion that really drives most of our behavior is the emotion of fear. The emotion of fear. Fear is a terrible driver of your life. You do not want fear in the driver's seat of your life. That's a terrible place for him to be. Fear, worry, and anxiety are primarily future-driven. Take an emotion and wrap it around a possibility. What if I get laid off? And what if I can't get unemployment? And what if I cannot pay my rent or mortgage this month? Or what if I contract you know, coronavirus, or what if I die? When you take that emotion and you put it together with, um, you know, wrap it around a possibility, something that might happen, you don't know if it's going to happen, but in your mind, it might happen. Again, that becomes a very, very powerful emotion. And what we, ha- what we tend to do is we allow fear to be the driver of our lives And what I'm trying to get us back to, as we started last Sunday, when we talked about Jesus being the resurrection of life, rather than letting fear be in the driver's seat of your life, I want you to allow faith to be in the driver's seat of your life. Faith has an object. The object is always Jesus. So let's put Jesus in the driver's seat of our lives because Jesus leads us to freedom. He doesn't lead us to to coping mechanisms that are unhealthy for us. He leads us to the freedom of bypassing those coping mechanisms and strapping on ourselves things like peace that we, we just sang about this morning. And so um, 
yeah, I, I, I want you to steer away from that. I want you to exchange fear for faith. For example, uh, did you know that last year, 2019, 34,000 people died from the flu? The year before that, it was almost 40,000. Now, why is it that we didn't panic about that? Because you didn't have the media out there ramping up your fear, right? So fear is like focused thinking. Like if I'm fearful and I start focusing my thought processes on what's creating fear in me, then fear runs away. Like it gets put in a driver's seat in my life, and now it goes from 20 miles an hour to 150 miles an hour, and we allow it to direct us uh, throughout the course of our day and, and our weeks. So, did you know that there's no cure for the common cold? There's no cure for flu. There are vaccines that you can take to try to ward it off, but there's no actual cure. I'm not saying don't, you know, take precautions with the coronavirus. I'm just simply saying this. There's always something out there that can take us out, right? Something out there that can lead to our death. The Bible says again, it's appointed unto man to die once. It's an appointment we're going to keep. We're not going to miss it. We're not going to bypass it. So we don't have to fear that. What it is that's going to take us out of this world, that's not the way we want to live. We want to live by faith with Jesus in the driver's seat of our lives, who is driving us down the highway of freedom so that I am free from the fear of what might be in the future that I really have no control over. Because if you think you have control over something, you only find out you don't have control over something, which makes you grab for more control over something that leads to the fact that you have no control, so you grab for more. It is a vicious cycle in life. It's not the way God wants us to live. So today I want to begin a brand new series called Living in Light of Eternity. If you want to be future-focused, then let God be in the driver's seat of your life, for he, God, is outside of time, space, and matter. That's why God created time, space, and matter. If you're going to create time, space, and matter, you have to be outside it. And why is this important? Because God is ever-present. He's always present. God doesn't have a past. He doesn't have a future. He's, everything is present to God. He sees everything, past, future, everything in between. So therefore, when you, when you came into this world, God already, has already seen your life from beginning to end on, on planet Earth. And, and he's always present in that moment. So if you want to know about your future, how about consulting somebody who knows about your future rather than being paralyzed by fear, worry, and anxiety over your future? A study about future events is what the Bible calls prophecy. Prophecy. So most of us have, have a natural desire to know what the future holds for us, which drives people to seek out palm readers, psychics, horoscopes. Um, however, those are not very reliable. And why, consult, um, why not consult the one who has created it all and holds the world together and as unfolding his plan and will and purpose for the world, who is your creator, God the Father who has created everything. So I'm simply saying this. Uh, we're going to be looking over the next several weeks at Bible prophecy, trying to give you the big picture as to how the world is going to unfold in the end. Okay, We are living in the end times, and so people say, well, is the world going to come to an end because of some you know, huge pandemic virus that may you know, engulf the world, if not coronavirus, maybe it's something else on down the road. Or I know uh, we were told that in 12 years, global warming is going to take us out. Well, is that true? No, it's not. That is not what the Bible teaches. God is very open about how his will and plan 
unfolds for the world and how this world comes to an end and what God has in store for it. Therefore, why don't we consult the person? (laughs) Because we want to fuel your faith in Jesus. We want to fuel your faith in your Heavenly Father who is allowing things to unfold according to his will, plan, and purpose. So let me give you a broad overview. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 24 today in verses 1 through 14. In fact, we're going to spend the next several weeks in Matthew 24 and 25 because this is a biblical prophecy about future events that Jesus gives to us. And Jesus, like in the life of his disciples who are about to you know, incur some, some very um, dramatic persecution in the near future, he, he wants them prepared. He wants them to know, listen, guys, this is what's going to be happening. These are future events. I'm telling you this ahead of time because I want you to dive deeper in your faith and trust in me and not cave into the fear, worry, and anxieties that these things might create in your heart and your life. So just kind of a broad overview, we are living in what the Bible calls the age of grace. This is the age of the church. And so this age of grace comes to an end by an event that forever changes the course of this world. And it's called the rapture of the church. We don't know when that's going to happen. We do know that all biblical prophecies have been fulfilled. So it is the next event on God's divine calendar. That means that whenever Jesus comes back to bring his church out of the world... Um, that will obviously have a huge impact upon the world. All of a sudden, you've got about 3 billion people who leave the face of the earth, and everybody's wondering, where did they go? You know, were there people like, you know, aliens from space come down and, and grab us, or, or how did that transpire? Well, the Bible tells us exactly. Jesus will take us out of the world in the twinkling of an eye. I mean, it's this that quick. That begins what is called a period of time called seven years of tribulation. At the beginning of that tribulation, there will be some nations, and we'll talk about this in future weeks, some nations like Russia, Iran, Iran, and some others that will rise up and and begin um, to, to war against Israel. And so as that tribulation begins, uh, there's an the Antichrist is going to rise up from the Middle East, and he's going to bring peace to the Middle East. And, and keep that war from actually transpiring as, as it could uh, and has, as it unfolds. And so he will make a peace covenant with Israel to protect her. But about three and a half years into the seven years, he's going to break that contract, that peace covenant with them, or, or peace treaty, and uh, then things begin to, un, you know, just things begin to unravel very, very rapidly in the world. Now, at the end of the seven years... The nations of the world will enter into the Valley of Megiddo, what is known as the Battle of Armageddon, to war against Israel once again. It is at that time that Jesus comes back, known as his second coming, with the church, and he puts an end to that war before it even begins. And then Jesus establishes his millennial kingdom on earth for a thousand years. Jesus will rule and reign from Jerusalem over Israel and over the world. And during that time, Satan and his fallen angels will be cast into the abyss, and it will be a time of peace, utopia on planet Earth, Earth for a thousand years. At the end of that thousand years, Satan and his demonic beings are let out of the abyss. Again, they will, they will arouse several nations in the world to war against Jesus, and again, Jesus puts the war down immediately, 
and then Satan and his demonic beings are cast into what is known as Gehenna or the lake of fire. And so at the end of that, then there's the great white throne judgment for all of those who are outside the covenant relationship with God. And at the conclusion of that, God will destroy the present heavens and earth by fire. He's renovating, he's cleansing the world of all sin. And he'll recreate the heavens and earth that will be without sin, so there's no more sorrow, sickness, death, any of those things. And then the new Jerusalem will come down and be the capital city of planet earth from which Jesus will rule and reign for all of eternity. And so that's kind of the big picture. And we're, we're going to hit on some, most of that throughout the course of this series. But here's the big idea for you. Jesus challenges us to live in a constant state of readiness for his return. Jesus challenges us to be constantly ready for his return. And that challenge is what Bible prophecy is all about. But the challenge of Bible prophecy flies in the face of what we believe as a culture. For example, culture believes that the future will always be better. The future will always be better. Everything we do, we do it so the future will be better. For example, you don't leave a job to go another, to another job so that things will be worse. You do that so things will be better. You don't sacrifice for your children so that their future will be worse. As parents, you sacrifice for the lives of your children because you want their future to be better. When you vote, you don't vote on a government official or you don't vote on, um, you know, a homeowners association or whatever it might be you're voting on. In order for things to get worse, you want things to get better. But as we're going to see in prophecy, as the time nears for Jesus' coming, things will get worse. They're going to get worse before they get better. In fact, they're going to get far worse until Jesus returns to the earth in order to make all things right, known as his second coming. Number two, culture believes that society is becoming more and more sophisticated, that we're becoming better and better. Uh, But if you look at the last 6,000 years of human history, you can't substantiate that. Um, Now, when I grew up as a kid, for example, let's just put it on a level we live on, you know, when I was a child growing up, like most people my age or older, you know, things were much different back then. Like, you could allow your kids to play outside. I mean, so, for example, when we got home from school, we'd do our homework, we would go outside. We would be gone for hours. Our parents didn't know where we were. Most likely, we were, we were at the, you know, the schoolyard. And I remember we'd be out there for hours, and when it was supper time, my mom would come out on the back porch, and she would yell my name. And if, if I didn't show up within, you know, just a certain amount of time, she would yell it again. But if she had to yell it a third time and she used my middle name, that means when I got home, I got a spanking, right? Okay, so I, I need to respond. But parents, that you, you, didn't, you weren't afraid of your children being, being abducted. You weren't afraid of your, anything bad happening to your kids. When I grew up, we never even locked our doors. We never locked our car doors. Rarely was the house ever locked. Um, people could come in, but it's altogether different. We didn't have school shootings uh, in, in my day, but things have changed enormously. Um, in our day, and then here and now, we have the ability to wipe humanity off the face of the globe with a push of a button. So needless to say, things are not getting better when it comes to our society because the Bible says the human heart is deceitful above all things 
and if you think about it, most of the pain that you're going to experience, have experienced, and are going to experience in the future in your life comes at the hands of other people. Things they have said to you, things they have done to you, and it creates a tremendous amount of pain and hurt and agony in our lives. And some of you, you know, you have been severely abused maybe growing up, and so you carry those scars with you. See, humanity is not really changing. We just become a little more sophisticated about how we do it. We may relabel things, uh, but the fact of the matter is the human heart is the human heart, and the Bible says the human heart is wicked and deceitful above all else. Who can tame it? We can't. Here's the third thing about culture. Culture believes that human decisions are the key to progress. Part of what we believe is our, in our culture is that, look, most of the culture doesn't believe in like good and evil. They don't believe that really exists. Most people just believe that you make decisions and you simply suffer the consequences of your decision. So you make a good decision, you're going to get good results. Make a bad decision, you're going to get bad results. And so there's really not a good and evil force in the world. It's just the consequences we experience in life as the result of the decisions that we make day in and day out. Yet the Bible teaches the exact opposite. The Bible says that we live in a world that has two rival kingdoms. There is a kingdom that is a force of evil, and there is a kingdom that is a force of good. The kingdom of God is the force of good. The kingdom of Satan is the force of evil. And these two kingdoms are residing and playing themselves out on the planet in which we live. Right? So every human being is either in one of those kingdoms or the other. Either you're in the kingdom of God, you're in covenant relationship with God the Father through His Son, Jesus Christ, or you're outside the kingdom of God. And so there are forces that are, that are um, battling against one another in this planet, this world in which you and I live. For example, the Holocaust was more than just Hitler's decision to hate Jewish people. He, he was obsessed with the occult. He was obsessed with the demonic. And so uh, the demonic teaching, so the influence and hatred for the extermination of the Jews was really... Um, it was more than something that was political. It was, it, was, it was more than something that was even personal. It was something that was demonically driven. There are things that happen in our world that are just absolutely pure evil, and you cannot explain it away as to somebody just getting up one day and making a bad decision. It's somebody's heart that's driven by pure evil that results in a lot of evilness happening in the, in the world in which we live. My point is this. It is hard to think the world is going to get really bad if all we have to do is stop and change people's minds, just getting them thinking better thoughts. Well, that'll take care of the world. That'll change everything. But you can't do that because it won't happen, right? We've been trying that since the time humanity was pl placed on planet Earth and decided to rebel and, and reject uh, the authority of God over our lives. Listen, God recognizes this. He's written about it, and that's why, like Paul would say in Ephesians 6, listen, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle against principalities and power of the air. Principalities and power of the air are demonic forces that have been unleashed upon planet Earth, and we are in battle, and we are in conflict with those forces. So Bible prophecy does not shy away from that. It exposes it. And the reason why God exposes it is because we need to know how our enemy operates in order for us to walk in freedom and victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. So in Matthew chapter 24, 
this is known, chapters 24 and 25, as the Olivet Discourse, uh, because simply Jesus was on the Mount of Olives when he, he began expressing these words. So um, notice what it says in verse 1. Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. And so, do you see all these things, he asked? I tell you the truth, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately and said, Tell us, they said, when will this happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, Jesus is in the last week of his life here on planet Earth. This is Wednesday. On Wednesday, Jesus spent an enormous amount of time in the temple teaching all day long. And so at the end of the day, they're leaving the temple. And so as they're leaving the temple and they're making their way uh, through the Kidron Valley, the disciples are looking back because the temple was a massive, massive structure. And so King Herod had been building on this thing for 50, 60 years, massive structure, ornate, beautiful building. And so they're looking at this, and they're just like taken back by it. And so this is on Wednesday. Remember, by Friday, Jesus is going to be crucified. By Friday afternoon, he's in the tomb. Sunday morning, he resurrects. And upon his resurrection, the Bible says that he spends the next 40 days talking to his disciples about the kingdom of God. And at the conclusion of that 40 days, Jesus ascends back into heaven. This is Acts chapter 1, back into heaven. And as the disciples are gazing at him, leaving the earth, the angels say to them, you know, what are you gazing at? He will return just as he is left. And so Jesus promised that he is going to come back, known as his second coming. And this is a promise that is reiterated in the scripture over and over again. And he said to his disciples, I want you to live in light of the fact that I'm going to be coming back. Now, have you ever done something you knew you should not have done because your parents weren't at home and you thought they were going to be gone for an extended period of time? Like they said, we're going to be gone for the weekend. You're in high school. You guys are old enough to take care of yourselves. Here's where the food is. Uh, we're going to be gone for a couple days. Visit our parents. We'll be back. So what, happened, what does a high schooler do? Well, it's party time, right? So you call all your friends. We're going to have a big party. And let's say your parents leave, and you're having this huge party on Friday night. And uh, on the way to um, your grandparents' house, let's say your mother or your father begins to get ill. They come home early. And when they come home, all of a sudden their house is filled with teenagers and alcohol and everything else that goes along with that. Oopsie. <laughs> right? So... You're surprised, right? And you're, more, you're mortified that they have showed up. Now, when I was young uh, in elementary school, I think I was like probably around third or fourth grade. I don't know. I, I guess I was prepping to be an arsonist. I, I'm not sure, but I, I just love playing with matches, right? I'd strike the matches, blow them out. So, so I decided one evening, my, you know, we lived in a duplex, and my aunt and uncle lived right beside us, and my cousins, and so they're all out on the front porch talking to each other, and the kids are out in the front porch playing. I go into the kitchen, sneak in the back of the house. I'm sitting there beside the sink, and I'm lighting matches and blowing them out or lighting them. Then I fill the sink up with water and throw the, the, the matches into the, the water, thinking I'd get away with this. And all of a sudden, 
unbeknownst to me, my mom comes marching into the kitchen and catches me. Let's just say I didn't sit down for a week after that because all of a sudden she arrived when I was not expecting her return. (laughs) Well, this is the foundational truth. One-third of the prophecies pertaining to Jesus, 300 of them, pertain to his first coming. Two-thirds of the prophecies pertaining to Jesus' second coming are given in Scripture. And so Jesus says, listen, I want you to live in light of the fact that I'm going to be coming back. That's why he said to his disciples later on, John 14, uh, when he was in the upper room Thursday night having Passover, I'm going to go and prepare a place for you so that where I am, you may be also. And so one of the healthiest mindsets that we can live with as believers in Christ is that Jesus is going to come back one day. And so that reality, living in light of eternity, living in the light of Jesus' return, should impact the way we live, the way we speak, the way we act, the things that we prioritize, and the things that we neglect. And so as Jesus leaves the temple, he's making this statement about this temple that all of a sudden, there's not going to be one stone left on the other. Now, Herod's temple was made up, the walls were made up of massive, massive stones. And the temple was extremely important to the Jewish people. It was the center of their lives. This is where God dwelt, the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was. And so it was central to them for, throughout their, their history as a nation. And this all drives all the way back to Genesis 12, where God's going to establish a nation, calls out a man out of Ur of Chaldea, uh, Abraham, and he says, through you, through your descendants, I'm going to rise up a nation. And I'm going to bless you, and and I'm going to bless you and bless this nation so that through you, the nations of the world might be blessed. All right? So a specific group of time for a specific group of people. They had a time and a place. Well, this is what the temple was. It had a particular time and a particular place. And Jesus is saying, in essence, this this temple is going to be destroyed. In other words, it's time and it's place is needed no more. It's done. It's an old system. The old blood sacrifice system is not going to be needed. Why? Because Jesus came into the world to be Messiah, right? He came to be the sacrifice for humanity's sin, and therefore the um, sacrificial system would no longer be needed. So when Jesus is being crucified, the veil that separated the Holy of Holies from the holy place, it tears from top to bottom, and God is serving notice. The temple is now no longer needed for sacrifice. There is now no longer any barrier between humanity and God, that God has not already taken care of that, and there's going to be a new mediator between heaven and earth, and it's not going to be a temple, a building. It's going to be a person, and that person is going to be Jesus Christ, which is why the Bible says there's only one mediator between heaven and earth, and that is Jesus Christ himself. And so, in essence, Jesus is saying, listen, the old is going to be done away with, and the new is coming. So when we compare old and new, um, sometimes it's hard for us to make that transition. For example, do you know that Uber is the world's largest taxi company, but it owns no vehicles? Airbnbs are now the world's largest accommodation provider, uh, for people's, you know, as motel, uh, almost like a motel or whatever you want to, it's Airbnb, right? It's in somebody's home. But they don't own any hotels. They don't own any motels. 
It's just using people's homes. Amazon's the largest provider of goods, but they have no inventory of their own. They're simply a middle guy. Uh, so basically, the way we do things in our world is changing, right? Out with the old, in with the new. We push back on that. The disciples aren't understanding this like, whoa, wait a minute. We can't wrap our heads around this. You mean the temple is going to be done away with? And that's in essence what Jesus is saying. And because of that, it prompts them to begin asking questions. Now, Israel, when God established the nation, God asked Israel to be faithful to the task of being light to the world, to let God so shine in their midst that the world would take notice that there is a God of Israel that is head and shoulder above any other God that people could come up with or manufacture. But instead, they chose to put up a mirror and look at themselves and focus on themselves, and it was we as a people and our land and our temple, and so um, that temple became a what? Jesus said a den of robbers. When I meant it to be a house of prayer, I meant it to be a lighthouse to the nations. You failed in your mission, and you're going to reject your Messiah. I'm going to dismantle the old, the old covenant, and I'm ushering in a new covenant. Only the new covenant is not based on a building. It's based on a person, on a relationship with Christ. This is very important for us as the church of Jesus Christ because our mission is to be salt and light in the midst of the world. But if we're not careful, we can move the focus off the world upon ourselves. And when we do that, as Jesus wrote to churches in Revelation about their condition, he says, listen, you have failed, you have left your first love, and because of that, I'm removing your lampstand from among you, I'm removing your your witness. You're no longer salt, you're no longer light, and Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, then you've lost your usefulness. Or as one church, the church at Laodicea, he says, listen, in fact, what you're doing is making me so nauseated, I'm literally going to spit you out of my mouth. We can't afford to be that way. But that's what happens. We tend to lapse back into self-focus when we are not keeping our, lo- our eyes focused upon what God has called us to do. That's why Paul says in Colossians 3, to set our minds and our hearts and our affections on things above. So because of that, here's, here's what the disciples ask Jesus. They say, well, when will these things happen? What will be the sign of your coming? That word coming is the Greek word parasua, which means what's, what's the time of your presence? In other words, when are you going to bring your full presence back to earth permanently? Right? So what is the sign of the end of the age? When is God going to establish his kingdom here on earth? When is this world system going to cease to exist? Now, we're not told the day or the hour, but what Jesus does say is what? He says, here are times, here are seasons. It's like, he's looking at verse 8, he says, it's going to be like birth pains. All of these things are the beginning of birth pains. Now, I have never had a baby. <laughs> However, I have been the witness to women having babies, right? So my wife, when she's having contractions, they start off light, they start off you know, far apart, and as the birth begins to get closer and closer. The contractions get much more rigorous and closer and closer together until finally she gives birth to something. So Jesus says, before I come back, my physical presence to where I'm going to start the, the beginning of the end in which my physical presence will be here on earth for all of eternity, he says there are going to be certain birth pains that are going to be happening. Certain things are going to be happening in the world around you that will give be assigned to you that The end is getting closer and closer. 
Carol Burnett, I, those of you who are my age would know who she is, but she was a comedian many, many years ago. Um, she said about men, the closest thing that a man can get to knowing what it's like to have a baby is to take your lower lip and pull it up over your head. So I don't know if that's true or not. I think kidney stones are pretty much close, uh, a close proximity. So here, what are those signs that Jesus gives to us? Here they are. Number one, it's going to be a time of spiritual confusion. Spiritual confusion. Notice what he says in verse 4. Jesus answered them and said, Watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, claiming I am Christ, and, and will deceive many. You will hear, and down, jump down verse 10. Um, he picks it back up. And at that time, many will turn away from the faith and will be betrayed and hate each other, and many false prophets will appear and deceive many. So there was a historical writer during the time of Jesus. The name was Flavius Josephus. I like that name. So if you're going to have a kid, Flavius, Flavius Josephus. So anyways, he was hired by the Roman Empire. He was a Jewish man. He was not a follower of Christ, not a believer. And they, he, they wanted him to chronicle the history of Israel. And so he wrote two, uh, had two writings, the works of Josephus and the Antiquity of the Jews, which covered much of their history, including everything that happens between the Old and New Testament during that 400-year span of time. Because there are things that happen in that intermediate time that show up in the New Testament. People are like scratching their head, like, where did that come from? Why, did, why is that happening? So, um, but he writes a book, and here's what he says. He makes a statement. No one in history has ever made the claim to be Messiah, saying, I am the Messiah, or I am God. No one has done that until Jesus of Nazareth. Now, there are many people who um, wanted to rise up against Rome, insurrectionists, uh, before Jesus hit the scene. And so they would rise up to overthrow the Roman Empire, and people say, well, this guy thinks he's Messiah, because that's what they thought the Messiah was going to do. They're going to come, overtake Rome, and, and establish God's kingdom right then and there. Uh, but after Jesus, there are a lot of people who are would-be messiahs, right? Thinking that they are the Christ, they are the Messiah. For example, back in the 70s when I got saved, it was Sun Young Moon and the Moonies. Like everywhere you went, bus stops and uh, airports or whatever, they're all hanging out claiming that their leader was actually Jesus in the flesh. And so from that time until the time we are living, um, we are, we, there is absolute spiritual confusion. Think about this. Here's where the confusion comes in. So people say, well, um, aren't all religions the same? You guys are all just kind of doing the same thing, heading to the same destination. You're all just taking different pathways. Some people call God, you know, Father, Yahweh. Some people call him Allah. Some people call him something else. There are various names, but, you know, all religions are basically the same whether it's you know, Hindu, Buddhism, whatever it is, multiple paths, same direction, that is absolutely not true. So 1 Timothy 4.1 says this, that a part of Satan's deception to the world will be through religion, right? The Spirit clearly says that in the latter times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Now here's the challenge, the the common misnomer is that all religions are tip basically the same. And here's what they say. Well, there might be superficial differences, but um, by and large, there's great commonality. It's actually the opposite. There is, um, <laughs> most faiths have superficial commonality, but huge differences. And I, I point this out because in our day and time, 
There's mass spiritual confusion in our world, and it's only going to get worse. So let's compare the two largest religions in the world, Christianity and Islam. Two largest faiths. Are the super... Are the different superficial? Are the different superficial? We call him God. Somebody they call him Allah. Pope Francis said, not too long ago, that Christians and Muslims worship the same God. They just address him differently. Is that the case? Um, Muslims and Christians do agree that there's only one God, uh, but who that God is how that God's to be understood, and how the followers are to respond to that God are vastly different. According to Islam, Allah is unknowable, right? He is totally separate from his creation. And according to Islam, Allah has no son, only messengers who speak for him. According to Islam, Allah gives rules for people to follow. And you've got to follow the rules and hope that your good works will outweigh your bad works so that you'll enter into paradise when you leave this world. Now, you can assure your entrance there if you will become a suicide bomber. And not only do you gain entrance, but you also get a, a great reward. Let's contrast it with Christianity. The Yahweh, God of Christianity, is not unknowable. He is very knowable. In fact, he invites us to know him, to walk with him, and, and to fellowship with him in deep intimacy. The God of Christianity is not separate from his creation, but he entered into his creation through his son, Jesus Christ, so that we would know God and he would know us, provide a relationship with us so that we don't put our hope in whether or not we've done enough good works to merit heaven. We put our hope and trust in Jesus who stood in our place and paid the price for the punishment of our sins. Christianity teaches that Jesus is the Son of God. Islam does not believe that. They believe that only Jesus was a prophet and he wasn't even one of the greatest prophets. So my point is this. Huge difference, vast difference, but as long as Satan can keep people confused about religion, he can ensure the fact that people, many people, will be on the broad road that leads to destruction rather than finding the narrow road that enters into heaven or the paradise that God has gone and prepared for us. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except by me. So it does matter which route you are taking in your spiritual journey. Jesus is saying that all other routes are ultimately dead ends. They're not the way to God. Jesus claimed exclusivity, which skewers the myth that all religions are basically the same. Here's the second thing, and that's going to be ramped up. Here's the second thing. It will be a time of political conflict. He says in verse 6, You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but in the but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and then there are going to be famines and earthquakes in various places. All of these things are part of the birth pains. The world has never seen a bloodier history than it is right now. When World War I hit, people thought that was the end of the world. 20 million people died. 20 minutes after, 20 minutes, 20 years after that came World War II. In that war, 70 million people died. Do you know that um, since 1985, 500,000 people die every year due to war? Here's a stat 123 million is the number of people killed in wars during the 20th century alone. 
it is recorded as the bloodiest century in recorded history. So it's hard for us to swallow because we are just so more sophisticated, right? We're not like those barbaric cultures, but really not much has changed. When Jesus said nation will rise against nation, the Greek word there is ethnos, which also speaks of ethnicity. Think about all of the ethnic cleansing that has going on in countries around our world. When you, face, when you trace the history from the time of Christ, and you're going to find that the number of wars and the frequency of wars continues to escalate. In the 1,000 years after Christ, there were only 50 wars. In the next 500 years, there were 100 wars. And the next 300 years after that, there were 250 wars. In the last 200 years, there have been 500 wars. And in the last four years, there have been 20 wars. All that to say that humanity only knows how to fight, and peace, practically speaking, is just when we back up long enough to reload for the next war. As Jesus said, these things will continue to escalate. Here's the third one. There will be a time of anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism. He says, then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by the nations all because of me. And remember, Jesus is speaking to his disciples here, and a part of the persecution is going to come upon them as followers of Christ as Rome rises up against, uh, and, and even their own people rise up against this new, new, new um, religion called the way, right? The followers of Jesus. But all throughout history, um, there has been an anti-Semitic flavor in the world. I mean, think about this. Um, For all the hatred, you know, when somebody compares you to Hitler, like sometimes people are arguing over something, say, oh, you're, you're as bad as Hitler. What they mean by that is not that you have a bad mustache, but it, what they mean is that you're, you're a hateful person. So I want you to think about all the hatred that was in Hitler against the Jewish people. And as a result of that hatred being unleashed upon them, because he's trying to develop the superior race, six million Jews die. Innocent people die. And you would think that the Jewish people would at least garner some sympathy from the world for what they have suffered. Not the case. Anti-Semitic flavor has been the political issue and hot button throughout the world. Why? Because they have an enemy. Who's their enemy? Satan. He's the force of evil that hates the people of God And so he hates the Jewish people. He knows they're in covenant relationship with God. God's not through with them yet, although they've been kind of temporarily set aside because they rejected their Messiah, but will be given another chance to receive Messiah during the millennial reign of Christ. And so he is constantly unleashing a barrage of hatred towards them. And so they were displaced from their country until May 14th, 1948, when they were finally able to come back into their land and, uh, but now, even now, like terrorist groups like Hamas, their primary goal is the destruction of Israel and the establishment of a uh, Palestinian state in their place, drive them out of the land. And so there's been constant, constant, constant uh, anti-Semitic things happening, uh, you know, just political things that are rolling out. And so even during the tribulation, you know, everyone's going to come against them in the last half of the tribulation, the the nations are going to rise up and war against them. 
Jesus says anti-Semiticism is simply a birth pain. And Satan also has his sights set on Christians, right? And so there was great persecution in the Roman Empire against Christians. But here's the, here's the thing. More Christians have been martyred in the last two centuries, in the last 120 years, than all of those who have been martyred in the previous centuries combined. Something that constantly is ramped up and being escalated. There's a huge persecution happening. 100,000 Christians are martyred for their faith every single year. That translates to 273 people a day are killed for their faith, 11 people every hour, one every five minutes are dying for their faith around the world. Jesus says these are birth pains. It's going to escalate. Here's number four. It will be a time of increasing devastation. He says there's going to be, um, there's going to be famines and earthquakes in various places and, and and these things are, you know, down in verse 13. But he who stands to the firm to the end will be saved. Now, we don't think much about, well, let's take earthquakes. We know that earthquakes are constantly, there are 500,000 earthquakes every year. Only about 100,000 of them are actually felt by mankind. But let's take famines. We don't think much about famines in our country because we have refrigerators full of food, right? But here's one of the things that keeps those who are a part of Homeland Security awake at night. It's not some rogue bomb that might be placed on an airplane, although that would keep them up. But here's, we are in a, a very much a cyber kind of warfare right now, and it could be unleashed. For example, um, if a group of terrorists unloaded upon us a nuclear device that would explode in the atmosphere and would cause what they call an electromagnetic pulse, that means that every single thing that we have in America will shut down instantly. Your phone will not work. Your car will not work. Planes will not work. Nothing will work. Your appliances will not work. And that means that our entire society would be shut down like that. So guess what? The coronavirus, what do people do? They're going to the stores. They're hoarding stuff. Can you imagine if all of a sudden truck drivers can't drive their trucks? Nobody can move goods and services. Therefore, people would hoard stores. There would be looting all over the place. It would be mass chaos, people fighting for their lives because nothing works, because everything is tied to this electromagnetic pulse. Think about the famine and the disaster that technology, technology could really mitigate upon the world. It's possible. Is that you say that's going to happen? I don't know. Number five, here's the last one. It'll be a time of greater gospel awareness. He says, the, he says in verse 14, in this gospel, the kingdom will be, be uh, preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. Now, certainly the gospel is going out to the world in an unprecedented rate because we now have technology, right? We have computers and we have Wi-Fi, and we, we, we literally, Billy Graham, before he died, did one last kind of crusade, and was, it was, you know, it was put out to the, the entire world, and it's amazing where you go, where people have little or nothing. For example, we've been to Nicaragua a few times on mission, and it's amazing. People have nothing. They kind of live in these shack houses, but every single one of them had a satellite dish on the roof, right? So the world is connected because of the internet, 
And so, uh, yes, the gospel is going out, but what Jesus refers to here will not fully take place until uh, during the time of the tribulation. We'll get that to that later. So I say all of that to say this. If you're waiting for life to get perfect, and if you're waiting for the world to get perfect before you remove fear and worry and anxiety, you're going to be waiting your lifetime. It's never going to happen. This world is never going to be peaceful. It's never going to be a calmness. Jesus said these are birth pains. They're going to get stronger. The contractions are going to be closer and closer together because it is a signal, it is a sign of my return. What we need to learn how to do as followers of Jesus Christ is not become unglued because some virus escapes upon the world, but we don't want fear and worry and anxiety in the driver's seat of our lives. We want Jesus in the driver's seat of our lives because our faith and trust is in him. He's already taken care of our future. He's already died for our sins. We've already entered into relationship. We already have covenant relationship with him. And so no matter what it is that may take me out of this world, I do not have to fear death. Death is simply a doorway I step into, not to cease existing, but I just move my existence out of this world into the place Christ has gone and prepared for me. That's what biblical prophecy is about. It's what living in light of God's eternity is all about. So I ask you two questions in closing. If you are a believer in Christ, who are you telling that Jesus is coming back? Jesus finished the book of Revelation and he said, Behold, I'm coming quickly at any moment, any day, any year. And what God has done is he's left us with a mission. What is our mission? to be salt, and to be light. Are we fulfilling the mission, the calling, in light of all that's happening in our world? I'm telling you, the world is not going to get better. It's just going to continue to get worse. And we have been called, we are called out, chosen people of God, just like Israel was called out and chosen by God to be salt and light in the world that's going to be coming unraveled and as the time gets closer for Christ's return, it's going to come unraveled at a more precedented speed. The second question is, how has the coming of Jesus changed the way you do life? How has it changed the way that you do life? In our culture, we put high premium on success and achievement and performance. Is that where God puts the emphasis you know, the Bible says, and we'll talk about this briefly in this series, that we all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and we're going to have to give an account. God says, I've given you resources. I've given you time. I've given you money. I've given you talents, and I've asked you to leverage them for the purposes of my kingdom. Now, watch this. You don't give those things back to God because those are first fruits. You simply return what is rightfully God's to begin with. Like when I give money to the church, I'm not giving an offering. I'm giving my first fruits, so I'm not giving, I'm returning God's first fruits, what are rightfully his, back to him. So when we stand in the judgment seat of Christ, Jesus is going to, he's going to ask the question, what did you do with my first fruits? Did you return them to me? Because now all of a sudden, that changes my priorities in life. What I'm going to do and what I'm not going to do, and how I'm going to act and not act, and what I'm, you know, what's going to be important, what's not going to be important, as I am being salt and light 
in the midst of a chaotic world. Now, some of you, you fear death. And the reason you fear death is because you don't know what your future holds. You don't know what's going to happen after you die. Can I assure you, you can, you can remove the fear of death when you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. God's Son came into the world to die for you. He came to stand in your place to absorb God's judgment upon himself for your sin and mine. And the Bible says that when we put our faith and trust in Jesus alone for our eternal salvation, he is the only way, the only truth, the only life, the only mediator between man and God, that God takes you who are dead and brings you back to life. That's why Christ is the only way. There are three deaths that the Bible speaks of, physical death, spiritual death, and eternal death. We all are going to die physically because we've all sinned. That's what the Bible says. Spiritual death is we spiritually died because of our sin. We we're separated from God. And eternal death is if I die in that separated state, then I will be separated for all of eternity. Jesus came to take care of all three deaths. So that through relationship with him, now all of a sudden the spirit of God moves inside of you, brings spiritual life where there was spiritual death, when this body ceases to function, it's placed in the ground one day when Christ raptures the church, and we'll talk about this next week, he'll raise that body out of the grave and make it new, reunite it with your soul and your spirit, and he'll bring that body back to life. And you never have to fear eternal separation from God because God is in covenant relationship with you. That means that forever he is your father. You are his son and daughter. You are in relationship with Christ. He is in you and you are in him. And so, how about, rather than letting fear, worry, and anxiety be the, in the driver's seat of your life, you let Jesus be there. And as the world gets worse, and as it begins to unravel, you don't have to be driven by these negative emotions. You can be driven by your faith in Christ and knowing that he has all things under control, and he holds your life in his hands, and he will provide for you everything you could ever need. So let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful and thankful that you see, you knew before we ever entered into this world what our greatest needs would be. We thank you that you are not hemmed in, you are not limited by time. But you're outside of time. And therefore, Father, you know it all from beginning to end. You know our lives. You know our thoughts. You know our motives. You know everything about us. But yet you reached out to us in love. And you displayed that love that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for every one of us. That through a relationship with him, we might enter into this covenant relationship with you. Whereby we hand Jesus our sins and he hands back to us the cancellation of our sin debt, and clothes us in himself, in his righteousness. He becomes our mediator, our savior, our Lord, so that we never have to, we don't have to walk in fear. Fear may hit us, but we don't have to live there. And we are so, so thankful for that because you hold the future. What do we have to worry about? What's the worst thing life can bring to us, Father, is death. But death is just a doorway into your presence, and so we are thankful that we know what our future holds. We don't have to worry about it. We don't have to wonder 
We may not know every little detail, but Father, even in the details, you have made provision for us through your Son, Jesus Christ. And so we are thankful and grateful for that today. In Jesus' name, we praise you. Amen. Well, I hope you've enjoyed this message. And if you have found this message helpful, please make sure to share that, share this with others, invite your friends to go to our Facebook page and perhaps watch this uh, as this series unfolds, as we look at what the end really looks like. What has God said when it comes to biblical prophecy and how God's going to unfold it all and how it's all going to come to a climax? Listen, this is not to breed fear. This is to breed hope in you and hope in knowing that your faith and trust in Jesus Christ will not be in vain, but it can ever, forever change the trajectory of your life as you follow him day in and day out. God bless you. We hope to see you back next Sunday. You have a wonderful, wonderful week.